Hi, everybody. Welcome back to Reading During Recess. I'm Terry LaRue, and I'm a first grade teacher. And I'm Sarah Hansen, and I am a writer and also a high school teacher. And today we are going to be talking about The Wonderful Wizard of Oz. The Wonderful Wizard of Oz, which is a 1900s children's book written by L. Frank Baum and illustrated by W.W. Denslow. And it's the first book in the Oz series. Obviously, Wonderful Wizard of Oz is one of like the most famous stories in American literature. And the Library of Congress has declared the work to be, quote, America's greatest and best loved homegrown fairy tale. Of course, if you can't grow your own fairy tales, store-bought is fine. <laughs> it is, like, I did like this book a lot. It felt very much like an answer to Alice in Wonderland. Yeah. It's like, well, I can do weird shit, too. Yeah, it's a very interesting... The little plot points of the, the journey, the, mm-hmm. the strange trip, mm-hmm. the odd characters. So the book received generally favorable reviews at the time. And many reviewers compared it to Lewis Carroll's Alice in Wonderland, although the similarities between the two are fairly superficial, basically in terms of like the plot being a young girl wandering around in a strange land and trying to figure out what the heck is going on and no one really being interested in helping her figure out what the heck is going on. (laughs) I would say that I will admit that the characters in Alice in Wonderland, which, by the way, I cannot wait to review, yes. are, like, decidedly more hostile. Yes. <laughs> like, like, they're, like, aggressively unhelpful. They're, like, unhelpful on purpose. Yes. The characters in The Wonderful Wizard of Oz are more just a little bit dumb. Yeah. So, the book is really famous for its story, but also its original illustrations by W.W. W. Denslow. And a lot of reviewers couldn't decide who deserved more credit for the book, L. Frank Baum or W.W. Denslow. Kindergarten Magazine writes, Impossible as are the little girl's odd companions, the magic pen of the writer, ably assisted by the artist's brush, has made them seem very real. And no child but will have a warm corner in his heart for the really thoughtful scarecrow, the truly tender tin woodman, and the fearless cowardly lion. Delightful humor and rare philosophy are found on every page. It's charming. It is. Yeah, honestly, I would... I I feel like the illustrations are helpful. Yeah. I'm trying to imagine, like... Because obviously, you know, I I think pretty much every kid alive now has the the background knowledge of the movie Mm -hmm. version of The Wizard of Oz. But if this had, like, just dropped (laughs) and someone were reading this to me at bedtime, I would have... I'd I'd be shaken up, man. The illustrations really do help. Yeah, I remember always um, being kind of confused as a kid because the Tin Man in particular seemed like a real non sequitur, you know? I was like, yeah, I know what a scarecrow is. I know what a lion is. What is a woodman? And what is a tin woodman? (laughs) Did you read the book as a kid? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I did not. I only had the movie version. I had a huge crush on the Tin Man. So oh. I absolutely have a place in my heart for him. A warm corner in my heart, well, such as it is. You shouldn't brag too much about having one of those, Terry. It's kind of insensitive. Yeah, I know. And if he were here right now, I'm sure he'd, he'd remind us all. Um, another review from the New York Times in September of 1900 said, The time when anything was good enough for children has long since passed, and the volumes devoted to our youth are based upon the fact that they are the future citizens that they are the country's hope and are thus worthy of the best, not the worst, that art can give. 
The story has humor and here and there stray bits of philosophy that will be a moving power on the child and will furnish fields of study and investigation for the future students and professors of psychology. The book has a bright and joyous atmosphere and does not dwell upon killing and deeds of violence. I'm actually going to stop right there. This book has so much killing and (laughs) so many deeds of violence. This book is flush with dead animals. I wouldn't say it's like a scary book. Yeah, so it's it's not, it's, not, it's like you said, it's not a scary book. But I was thinking about like reading it to my class. My kids are at an age now where they really like chapter books, you know? Yeah. They like having chapter books be read to them. You know, they're first graders, they're like six and seven, so their attention span is like getting better. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh, could I read them this? And not long into it, I was like, I don't really want to. I think I could read it to like my own children. Yeah. You know, but there there's just enough killing in mm-hmm. it that I was like, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. If, I guess what maybe some of these reviewers are comparing it to is Grim Fairy Tales and Hans Christian yeah, Andersen, right. which are decidedly darker. And are actively depressing. The story right. certainly is not depressing at any point. And sure, that comparing to probably other kids lit from 1900 it probably doesn't dwell too much upon killing and deeds of violence but i'm like a i'm a tender-hearted 2023 snowflake mm-hmm. and there are so many animal deaths in this <laughs> and i know that my kids would harp on them like i know that it would be like we would not be able to quickly move past <laughs> these killings yeah it's a kind of understand the origins of the book i think it's helpful to look at the introduction the very brief introduction that l frank Baum wrote um and this appears at the front of the book he says folklore legends myths and fairy tales have followed childhood through the ages for every healthy youngster has a wholesome and instinctive love for stories fantastic marvelous and manifestly unreal the winged fairies of Grimm and anderson have brought more happiness to childish hearts than all other human creations Yet the old-time fairy tale, having served for generations, may now be classed as historical in the children's library, for the time has come for a series of newer wonder tales, in which the stereotyped genie, dwarf, and fairy are eliminated, together with all the horrible and blood-curdling incident devised by their authors to point a fearsome moral to each tale. Modern education includes morality, therefore the modern child seeks only entertainment in its wonder tales and gladly dispenses of all disagreeable incidents. Having this thought in mind, the story of the wonderful Wizard of Oz was written solely to pleasure children of today. Hmm. It aspires to being a modernized fairy tale in which the wonderment and joy are retained and the heartaches and nightmares are left out. Charming. I would agree with that. It definitely is lighter than a lot of others. I mean, one thing that I do appreciate about it, which is also unique for children's literature of this time period, is that I I wouldn't say that it doesn't have lessons because it does, but... Oh, absolutely. It doesn't have children behaving badly and getting punished. Yeah, it's it's not preachy. He was interested in writing an American fairy tale. That was something he was very cognizant of. And that's something that a lot of, like, the scholars... Not enough fairy tales reference Omaha. (laughs) That is a serious issue. And yeah, it talks about a lot as being America's contribution to the fairy tale canon or... America's contribution to, like, a great, the great quest narratives. Um, Absolutely. 
He also, as a child, was afraid of the Grimm and Anderson fairy tales, and so he wanted to make something for kids that would be maybe less upsetting, which is funny because I think that, like, generations of children have been low-key traumatized by the monkeys in The Wizard of Oz. Oh, absolutely. Well, the movie is way scarier than the book. Yeah. If someone had read the book to me as a child, I think I would have been just fine. Um, But the movie's movie's a little scary. (laughs) The movie is a little scary. It scared me. One thing that's also interesting about the book, so there's a lot of books in the Wizard of Oz series, and he wrote the first, I don't know how many, I should look that up, and then they were taken over by other authors after his death. But in the books that Alfred Baum contributed, romance is not really a factor. He thought that the whole like prince and princesses thing was overdone and he didn't want to dwell on that, which I think is an interesting. Yeah. Yeah. And Dorothy's young in this book, mm-hmm. you know, in the movie, she's probably like a, she seems like a teen, mm-hmm. maybe like even like a young woman. But in the book, she's very much a young child. Right. Before we dive into the plot of the book, I think it's useful to know a little bit more about the author. So Alfred Baum was born in 1856 and died in 1919. And he published 14 Oz novels and 41 other novels. The man was busy. So Baum was born in 1856 and also raised in upstate New York. And he had a lifetime infatuation with the theater. And he actually worked as a playwright and actor and a producer as well, but without very much success. Um, and in 1882, he married Maud Gage, which is such an 1882 name, incredible, <laughs> who was uh, a daughter of Matilda Joslyn Gage, who was a famous woman suffrage and feminist activist. All right. Matilda Gage, his mother-in-law, was a co-founder of the National Woman Suffrage Association with Susan B. Anthony and Elizabeth Cady Stanton. In July of 1888, Baum and his wife moved to Aberdeen, Dakota Territory, where he opened a store called Baum's Bazaar. And he was not a great businessman and went bankrupt. His time in the Dakota Territory served as a reference point for the setting of Kansas in The Wonderful Wizard of Oz. In addition to running a failed store, he also bought a newspaper, which he also wrote for in Aberdeen. And then this newspaper failed in 1891. And so then his family moved to Chicago. I love this. This is the confidence only a white man in 1891 could have to fail so many times and so hard. He was and to just keep going. He came from money. It's like David Beckham's son. I don't know it's anything about like, David Beckham's you son. You don't? Oh my god, you have to look it up, then you'll see what I mean. He's this Nepo baby who's like keeps trying different things and just has a positive attitude and sucks at all of them. <laughs> he released this like terrible book of photography. Now he's I think his name's like Brooklyn or something. Oh yeah. Of it is. And now he's like a, I think he's a chef. And it's just like, that's what you can do when you're the child of people with a lot of money. Mm -hmm. You can try lots of different things and do most of them badly. This is not an argument, by the way, that he is not a talented writer, because I definitely think he is. But I just, I'm good for him that he had so many opportunities to blow it. Yeah, he really did. So he came from money. And I think his, his dad at one point basically paid for him to build a theater and like have his own theater company. I don't know exactly what happened there. I know one of the theaters that he owned and worked in burned down. Mm, Insurance fraud. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, this newspaper that he bought and wrote for, it's going to come up later because he unfortunately wrote some really racist stuff about Native Americans. Oh, that. Yeah. 
I can't believe that our fave, a white man in 1890 from a rich family, might be problematic. Yeah. I am flabbergasted. Yeah. Um, all right. So Baum's first books were collections of nursery rhymes and nonsense poetry. I love that. I personally write nonsense poetry. I'm a big fan of limericks, personally. Do you have any limericks you'd like to share? I would love to. I was always proud of this one. A governess aboard of a barge found herself getting bored of her charge, and so on a lark fed the babe to a shark. Police report she's still at large. (laughs) I also like the occupants of a sprawling estate will not introduce to their guests their son Blake. Disgraced by his shrieks and his gibbers and squeaks, they hide him away in the drapes. A man with a great length of beard found the touch on his toes far too weird, and with foot held aloft, he chopped all ten off with an old pair of dull pruning shears. (laughs) These are excellent, Terry. Thank you. I'm really proud of them. See, Sarah and I are both poets. Mm -hmm. You know, it's just like that I keep contacting the sun, and they won't contact me back. (laughs) Anyway. Anyway. So yeah, Baum's first books were nursery rhymes and nonsense poetry, which makes a lot of sense given, you know, his his big success with The Wizard of Oz, which was published in 1900. Baum continued to be involved in theater and also hoped that good film versions of his works would be made, wish granted. Mm -hmm. And in 1914, undeterred, Baum started his own film company, (laughs) the Oz Film Manufacturing Company, but wait for it didn't find much success (laughs) and on may 5th 1919 bomb suffered a stroke and he actually fell into a coma and died the next day at the age of 62 r.i.p i feel bad for making fun of him like literally one sentence before it's fine well, what do you think? Is it time for a plot summary? I think it's time for a little plot summary. You think it's time for a plot summary? I think it's time for a little plot summary. I think it's time for a plot summary. Okay. <laughs> this is a serious podcast for serious people. So the novel opens up on the uh, infamous Kansas prairie where the orphan Dorothy lives with Aunt M, Uncle Henry, and her little dog Toto, who is the joy of her life. Because Kansas, we get the sense, like, sucks. Mm-hmm. <laughs> They talk a lot about how gray and dismal it is, and you really get the sense, for those of you who, like, are familiar with the movie but not the book, the comparisons between the two with, like, the the switch from black and white to technicolor make a lot of sense. Mm -hmm. He does a a great job kind of building that atmosphere. So in chapter one, a cyclone whips up, and it lifts the house along with Dorothy and Toto inside of it, and Dorothy manages to fall asleep. Incredible. And when she wakes up, she finds that her house has landed in a beautiful land inhabited by small, strangely dressed people who are thrilled to see her. Dorothy meets the Witch of the North, who tells her that this is the land of Oz, and specifically, she is in the land of Munchkins. And the Munchkins are very grateful to Dorothy because her house has landed on the Wicked Witch of the East, killing her and freeing the Munchkins from enslavement. There's a lot of enslavement. There is. Everybody's enslaved. I mean, it is an American fairy tale, so I guess. Yeah, so it has to be racist. (laughs) It's fair. (laughs) I do want to clarify that the Witch of the North, who Dorothy meets first, is not Glinda. For those of you who have seen the movie but not read the book, 
in the movie they're made like one character there's the good witch of the north who is also glinda and in the book they are two separate characters and she meets the witch of the north first which actually makes a lot of sense because in the movie you know she meets glinda and glinda tells her to go see the wizard of oz and she goes and sees him and obviously the whole thing is pointless because he still can't get her back and then glinda's like ah oh, i didn't tell you the whole time you could have just tapped your heels together mm-hmm. and you're like oh my god why didn't you tell me that sooner yeah so making them like two different people because glinda does show up in this book at the end mm-hmm. and it makes you want to throttle her slightly less yeah now that you know she's not the one responsible for sending Dorothy on this whack-ass mission. That's a good point. Yeah, so the Munchkins are thrilled because the Witch of the East is dead, and the Witch of the North gives Dorothy the dead witch's silver shoes, which are the ruby slippers from the movie, but are silver in the original story, and tells her to travel along the yellow brick road to the City of Emeralds. And she tells her that maybe if she explains her situation to the Great Wizard of Oz, he might be able to help her get home to Kansas. And in addition to the shoes, the Witch of the North also gives Dorothy a little magical kiss, <laughs> which is uh, supposed to protect her from harm, and which is visible on her head. Oh, yeah. It's, it's like a little mark on her forehead. I'm going to be honest. I would be absolutely livid if someone just, like, gave me a little scar <laughs> with a little smooch. What if the scar protected you? Um, no. I'm very vain, see? <laughs> <laughs> you have to understand. <laughs> yeah, so the slippers are silver. And they're not actually slippers. They're called silver shoes, right? Yeah. Yeah. And you know, I mean, they're not slippers in the movie. They're either. not slippers either, but they're always called the ruby slippers. They are. You're right. I forgot about that. Ruby slippers. You but know? yeah, they were made ruby because they popped more in the Technicolor. In the Technicolor. That's right. Yeah. And it, yeah. And it was a good choice. Mm-hmm. The thing that I read also said that, like, they were afraid that the silver wouldn't contrast well against the yellow brick. Mm-hmm. I was like, that's a good point. Yeah, that is a good point. So, yeah, so early on in the journey, Dorothy meets a scarecrow who was only created the day before and who longs for brains. And she invites him to join her for her audience with Oz. And then they spend the night in a little cabin and meet the Tin Man, who is rusted in place. And Dorothy frees him by loosening his joints with his oil can. And he joins the group, and the Ten Man tells them the horrific story, which is completely left out of the movie. Oh, yeah. Um, He's just, like, some guy in the movie. Yeah. Which was honestly always fine with me. Yeah. I was like, why not? If we have a talking scarecrow and we have a talking lion, why not? We can have a guy made out of tin. That makes that's totally fine. But in this version, Al Frank Baum is like, no, we need there to be a reason why this man is made of tin. And the reason needs to be grotesque. Do you want to tell us why, Terry? I would love to tell you why. So the Tin Man had once been a human being, and he had been, I guess he'd been a munchkin, Mm -hmm. um, and he had been in love with a little munchkin girl, and the munchkin girl lived with her her mean aunt, I think, Mm -hmm. and her aunt had not wanted her to leave and be with him because she wanted her to like stay and do housework. So I think she asked like the Wicked Witch for help. And the Wicked Witch cast a spell on his axe so that when he went to chop down a tree, he chopped off his own fucking leg. And he's, like, largely undeterred by this for whatever reason. And he, like, gets a tin leg made. And he's like, this is fine. That's okay. <laughs> and then goes back to chopping wood, which, like, personally I wouldn't do. But <laughs> rip to the tin man. I'm different. <laughs> And obviously, like, the axe is, I guess, still enchanted, and he chops off his other leg. (laughs) 
And he then gets like another leg made of tin. And you would assume at this point he would stop, right? No. He then gets a new tin leg, cuts off his arm. And at that point, he does stop. Just kidding. He doesn't. He still doesn't stop. He goes back to the tin guy. He gets a tin arm. At this point, he is a quadratinlegic. Yeah. <laughs> he does... He is undeterred, and this time he cuts off his whole torso. And actually, I don't know if he's cut off his head yet. I think he cuts off his head last, maybe? Actually, I think he cuts off his head first. He cuts off his head, Newton head, and finally, the only thing that could have stopped him, but it still doesn't, I want to be clear, he's still in the woods, cuts off his torso which, like, I still am struggling to understand the logistics of. And also, you know, cleaves his heart. Mm-hmm. And the tin guy is, for whatever reason, I guess, unable to make him a heart. Despite, obviously, being able to do, like, a multitude of other... Prosthetics. Like, ungodly. <laughs> Sentience in this universe is, like, a disturbing concept, to yeah. be honest. Yeah, so... Th- and then he doesn't have a heart, and he's really sad, because he's like, I sure would love to love... Mm-hmm. But I can't because I have no heart, which to me is not the biggest tragedy of this man's existence. I personally would argue that he maybe has less brains yeah. than a person might want, but his priorities are different from mine, and that is okay. That always confused me about how the Ten Man, when I was a kid, how the Ten Man wanted a heart and the Scarecrow wanted a brain. Because I was like, don't both of you guys want both? <laughs> Right? So, yeah, so there's the Tin Man. So they invite him to join, Mm -hmm. and they continue through the woods. And next they meet a lion who attacks them and can't, like, do much to the Tin Man and the Scarecrow, but, like, grabs Toto. And Dorothy hauls off and, like, smacks him across the face. Like, this is a whole lion. And she literally just, like, hits him. And he's sad. He's always like, oh, I'm a coward. So the lion is like, you're right. She, she like, calls him a big bully. She's like, you're a coward. He's like, I am. I'm so sad. And he joins the group in hopes of receiving courage from the wizard. In the book, I found the lion possibly the most likable out of all of them. In mm-hmm. the movie, he's so annoying. I hate him in the movie. He's so obnoxious. He's, he's like, blubbering all the time. Mm-hmm. And he does this thing mm-hmm. and it used to drive me up the wall something about his costume i find the most unsettling out of all of them it's just a little gross it, i think it's whatever they do to his like little face to give him the little like the yeah little, little like lion whatever. cheeks yes yes it's the lion cheek the prosthetics that they put on the lion in the movie were really hard to put on and take off and they left like permanent lines on his face oh my god yeah I know that the Tin Man almost died from. Yeah, like, we'll it get like, it. We'll get into yeah, everything. Yeah, that whole, movie was like yeah. a shit show. Yeah, it's also an incredible film and probably one of the best of all time. Yeah, but also a shit show. Okay, so yes, we left off with the introduction of the lion. So then the group of four has a run-in with an animal that's either pronounced like Khalid or Khalid, mm-hmm. and they're these monstrous bear slash tiger-like creatures. I think they have like the head of a tiger, the body of a bear, or possibly vice versa. And to escape, they, I think, managed to, like, run across a pit via a log that the Tin Man traps down. Mm-hmm. 
and essentially they're saved by the group's special skills and most notably from very clever ideas from the brainless scarecrow and bravery from the cowardly lion which is like the first time that we start to you know see these character traits from them that are pretty obvious throughout the book yeah they almost lose the scarecrow in the river should have left him there (laughs) and at one point they cross through a poppy field and the flower scent puts dorothy into a deep sleep before they can cross and the lion tries to run ahead but he also falls asleep and while the ten men and the scarecrow are standing around wondering what to do they see a wildcat chasing a mouse and the ten man is so overcome with empathy and compassion for all living things (laughs) that he decides to cut the wildcat's head off to save the mouse this is exactly why i could not read this book to my class like and this is just the first animal decapitation in the book (laughs) just so that we are clear this they like really drive it home you know like the the tin man is very Mm tender-hearted which is funny of course because he has no heart he's like very emotional and sympathetic and it's not like the animal's like playing with the mouse or tormenting (laughs) it it's just like a cat chasing a mouse and he cuts its head off (laughs) which is psychotic but but it it ends up working out right Mm -hmm. yeah it was the mouse queen The Mouse Queen is very grateful to the Ten Man, and so she promises service to the group and her many mouse subjects, rescue the lion and Dorothy from the poppy field. So throughout all these adventures, all the non-human members of the company show like great courage and heart and intelligence, which is like very sweet. They are also, however, so obnoxious. They talk incessantly about their woes and are, like, so self-absorbed. Like, anytime Dorothy's like, I sure wish I were back in Kansas, you know? It's like, I wish I had a heart. What was it? Oh, I think it was, like, when they see the flowers. They're like, these flowers are so beautiful. And the Tin Man, like, has to immediately cut in. He's like, if I had a heart, I would love these even more. (laughs) Give it a rest. Yeah, they are very myopic. It's a good word, Sarah. Thank you. Yeah, it's it's a little bit much. It's a little much, if I I'm know. honest. It feels like they're always trying to one-up each other. They are. They are. They're like, oh, I would be fine without a brain if only I had a heart. Oh, I would be exactly. fine without a heart if I only had courage. It's like, it's oh It's like my hanging God. out in a group that's, like, made up of all of, like, that one person who you can't stand. Yeah. But there's, like, four of them. Right, and, like, like, the love of God. There's only one person in this group who has an actual problem, which is Dorothy. Like, can we please focus? Right? You should be grateful, frankly, that you have sentience. (laughs) Anyway. Eventually, they arrive in the Emerald City, which is very beautiful, but they're immediately given glasses, or they're, like, goggles that lock behind their head (laughs) to protect their eyes from what they're told is a blinding, dazzling light. Oz agrees to meet with them, but he will only meet with them one-on-one, and he appears as a different figure to each traveler, and he tells them that he will only grant their wishes if they kill the Wicked Witch of the West, and so they set out for the land of the Winkies in the West. And this is, like, the first time we hear about the Wicked Witch of the West. Like, in the movie, she's the main threat and Mm -hmm. appears multiple times. In this, she's honestly just kind of, like, a side plot Mm -hmm. but she senses their approach and she (laughs) tries to stop them by sending a pack of wolves who the tin man of course decapitates (laughs) he cuts off their heads so next she sends a flock of crows 
and the scarecrow snaps their necks. <laughs> and then she sends a swarm of bees, and they, like, die because they try and sting the Tin Man, which is less horrific. So, yeah, um, to call back to that earlier point about, like, a lack of violence in the book, again... This is, like, a yet another story that I would not read to several students at once. Because he snaps, and, you know, and it's kind of graphic. He's, like, the scarecrow, he doesn't scare them off, you know? It's like he twists their heads until they are dead. Honestly, I would be less afraid of the Wicked Witch of the West at this point. <laughs> also, the agility that the Ten Man must have with these prosthetic limbs to be able to decapitate an entire pack of wolves. It's pretty impressive, because I think it's, like, 40 wolves. Yeah you're doing fine dude but this is a man who rusts when he gets emotional so finally the witch uses her golden cap to call on the winged monkeys who are basically slaves to her bidding who (laughs) rip the scarecrow into pieces (laughs) and scatter them all over the place drop the tin man into a rocky pit and then they tie up the cowardly lion because the witch has requested him as a slave And Dorothy, who is protected by the Good Witch's Kiss, is brought along as well. So the Wicked Witch of the West enslaves Dorothy and the lion. She's hoping to get Dorothy's magic shoes. And at one point, she trips Dorothy to get one of the shoes. And Dorothy responds by flinging a pail of water over her. And you know what happens next. (laughs) The witch melts away, and the grateful Winkies are freed from enslavement. Um, And that brings Dorothy's count of peoples that she has freed from enslavement (laughs) up to two. And we're only like halfway through the book. Also up to two. Yeah. I guess Um, they're not premeditated. She is really just like the great liberator of Oz. She is. And you know what? That is actually that's direct action. Oh, man. So the Winkies are very grateful and they help. Dorothy and the lion find and repair the scarecrow and kind of patch up the tin man, which again, like brings interesting points about the sentience Mm -hmm. of the scarecrow. Is he alive and in pain when he is in multiple pieces? Because like when he's created, he doesn't really gain sentience until they put his face on. Yeah, it is very weird though, because it's like, how long was he sitting there? He was only on that pole, I guess, for, like, a day before Dorothy helped get him off. Yeah. We're talking about, like, when she first finds him. Yeah, he was only there for a But he's just, like, a living creature yes, stuck on a pole. Correct. That is correct. It's so upsetting. Like, is that the case for all scarecrows? I think all the In ones with faces. land? I, I guess, yeah, I guess you just can't give them faces. Yeah. That's terrible. So the Winkies are, like, super psyched. And <laughs> they, for whatever reason, become very attached to the Tin Man. Yeah. And ask him to be their king. I don't Mm -hmm. know why. Like, who is this guy? (laughs) And he's like, totally. I will come back once I've gotten Dorothy home. I want to come back to how the Tin Man was really in love with this girl. And part of why he wanted a heart was so that he could feel love again. But then she just does not come back into play. And you know why? It's because men will always choose power over relationships. (laughs) Disgusting. So yeah, he's super psyched. And for whatever reason is down so he he rules the emerald city right is that what he's no that's the scarecrow oh so the ten man is everybody like gets a kingdom at the end of the book so this that's ten man's kingdom is the winkies then yes the tin man is going to rule the winkies once he's gotten dorothy home so so far our count of the three who now own kingdoms is at one but just you wait (laughs) there are more kingdoms to give away Dorothy brings along the golden cap that she found in the witch's room. 
which she eventually realizes can summon the winged monkeys. So the monkeys then carry the travelers the rest of the way. And the king of the monkeys tells Dorothy how they were imprisoned by the golden cap. So each time a person takes possession of the golden cap, the monkeys become three times the slave of the wearer. So basically they, the wearer gets like three favors that they can call in. Yeah, And exactly. the monkeys have to perform them. And they all have to be things that can be done by a flying monkey. You know, like there are a lot of things I would like, but there aren't a ton of things I need in my life that can be done by flying monkeys. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. My laundry once. I don't know. Running an <laughs> errand for me once. And I don't want a flying monkey touching my laundry. Yeah, right? Please. Maybe so they yeah. could rob a bank for you. Oh, that would be nice. I bet they could do that. Anyway. anyway. So the monkeys in the book, unlike in the movie, are not evil. They are just... They have to do the bidding of the owner of the golden cap, and they are frankly super psyched that Dorothy has it now. Mm -hmm. I also love the wacky little charm you have to say to make the cap work. What do you say? So Dorothy's trying to get the monkeys, and she's standing there, and she has epi, peppi, kekki, she said, standing on her left foot. What did she say? Asked the scarecrow, who did not know what she was doing. Hi, low, hole low, hell low, Dorothy went on, standing this time on her right foot. Hello, replied the tin man calmly. <laughs> zizzy, zizzy, zick, said Dorothy, who was now standing on both feet. This ended the saying of the charm. I love the tin man. Hello. Hello. <laughs> it's like, oh, that's good. Okay. That is We're a doing really, this now. That is a really stupid charm. Yeah, it's a terrible charm. I would never use the cap just because I would be so embarrassed about anybody seeing me. I'd be like, I have to go to the bathroom. <laughs> So they arrive back in the Emerald City, and the group demands that Oz fulfill his promises. But when they go to his room, Toto accidentally knocks down a screen and reveals that the true Oz is some little old guy <laughs> behind the curtain. And isn't that the way it always is? It is exactly like that. Honestly, it's giving time. Rupert Murdoch. <laughs> Oh, my God. Uh, yeah, okay. So Rupert Murdoch, I'm sorry, Oz, <laughs> admits that he's just some guy. <laughs> he's, just, he's just a man uh, who accidentally flew in from Omaha, Nebraska, <laughs> on a hot air balloon many years ago and just, like, decided to stay. <laughs> and he's the one who had the Emerald City built. And even, like, the Emerald City, I don't know why he was, like, he couldn't just be like, I'm going to build a great city because it's not emerald. It's not green. The reason they all wear the glasses is because it's a regular city, mm -hmm. but the glasses are green tinted. Mm -hmm. So everyone believes that everything there is green. I don't know why he felt like he had to do this. <laughs> I don't know why it wouldn't have been enough to just be like, I'm going to build a really cool city. Terry, you forget how much fun it is to lie. <laughs> that is so true. <laughs> I do love to lie. Don't underestimate. The joy that comes from lying to a lot of people. Lying. It's fun. It's good for me. <laughs> good old Oz. So yeah, he's he's clearly useless. Mm -hmm. And the party are like, son of a bitch. But they maintain that he has to fulfill his promises because they are all very stupid. Mm -hmm. And he does. He gives the scarecrow brand new brains, which <laughs> just means that he stuffs his head with bran, pins, and needles. Which is, like, again, 
grotesque. Yeah. He gives the Tin Man a silk heart, which is stuffed with sawdust. You know, it's and very um, Build-A-Bear Workshop. It is giving Build-A-Bear Workshop. <laughs> you are exactly right. This is... <laughs> and you know what? I always did love that as a kid. Like, I liked the, the heart the best. Mm-hmm. One time when I went to Build-A-Bear Workshop, when they weren't looking, <laughs> I took, like, a handful of hearts and put, like, eight hearts in my bear. Oh, my God. That's terrible. I was like, now he'll love me more than everyone else's bears love their He's kids. He's going to have a serious heart condition. <laughs> that is awful. Uh, where was I? And he gives the lion a potion that he claims is courage. And the travelers are faithful and grateful and pleased. Mm-hmm. And dumb as hell. And the scarecrow, while annoying before, is twice as annoying when he thinks that he is intelligent. Oh, yeah. It's true. So Oz decides to take Dorothy and Toto home in his balloon. I remember his hot air balloon. And he appoints the Scarecrow as the city's new ruler. That brings our count of non-human things that rule over people up to two. Yep. Democracy has not made it to Oz yet. Democracy dies in Oz. (laughs) (laughs) All right. And Toto runs off and Dorothy chases him, which then causes her to miss the balloon's liftoff. And Oz just keeps lifting off without her. And it's like, okay, bye, sorry. Okay, Um, so here's my thing. I don't know a lot about hot air balloons. When you go in a hot air balloon, do you just kind of give up agency? (laughs) Are you just sort of like, this is my life now? Like, do you have to, like, wait until you can come down? Or, because he made it seem like that was his only option. He was like, oh, hell. (laughs) But, like, in theory, you're allowed to go on civilian balloon rides. (laughs) So surely they have a way to get you down. Yeah, he definitely could have. Also, this was his literal profession for years before he came to Oz. He was a hot air balloon operator. So he fuck up this badly. He, I just don't think he wanted to take Dorothy home. I think Oz sucks. Yeah, I remember that part of the movie being like, oh my god. Yeah, because you can definitely turn off the hot air and the balloon will come back down to earth. Yeah, that's how they work, right? Like, yeah. there's got to be some plan. I don't think they would let you go on one if there weren't a plan. Yeah, I just don't think he wants to travel with Dorothy. I don't know. He's like, man, what are we going to talk about? So valid. Honestly, having sat with my students next to me on bus rides on field trips, <laughs> it is hard to talk to kids one-on-one. Be like, do you like movies? <laughs> it's like, I don't know what to say to them. So Dorothy asks the monkeys to carry her home because she remembers that she still has another favor, but they tell her that they can't cross the desert surrounding Oz. So like I'm saying, on the list of favors that I would ask a winged monkey to do for me, it's like dwindling, to be honest. (laughs) What good is this? (laughs) Whatever. A soldier in the Emerald City tells Dorothy that Glinda, the good witch of the South, might be able to help Dorothy return home. And so the group head into Quadling country, which is another little region. Um, And at one point they pass through a forest with mildly aggressive trees. In the forest, the lion kills a giant spider who has been terrorizing the animals that live there. And you can probably guess what happens next. The grateful animals ask the lion to be their king. And he agrees. (laughs) He agrees to do so after... He finishes helping Dorothy get home. 
I love that these, like, three nations are just, like, sitting around twiddling their thumbs, like, waiting for someone to rule them. Yeah. Like, man, we haven't had an oppressive overlord in, like, five minutes. (laughs) We're really jonesing for a fix. So the group also passes through a land where everything is made of China. Fine China, not, like, Yeah, like, fine China. And Dorothy, and they upset a girl's cow who breaks off its own leg. Mm -hmm. In my mind, horrific implications. But it turns out in this world, instead of shooting a large animal who breaks a leg, you just repair its little China leg. I don't know why they just couldn't shoot him with a little China gun. (laughs) His quality of life is going to be drastically diminished. (laughs) But while they're there, Dorothy, like, casually asks this girl, because she's like, you are so pretty. She's like, can I take you back to my aunt's house and keep you on the mantle? She's like, I would think a microaggression (laughs) <laughs> it was giving very much like Laura Ingalls wanting to keep oh, yeah. the the Osage baby. Mm-hmm. I just love that she did it. The girl's like, no, <laughs> absolutely not. No, thank you. Which actually, and then she was like, if we're in this land, we can live really happily. But if we're removed from it, our joints won't move. And I was like, is this like a horrific implication that China figurines in our world are like sentient beings from the China world who have been transported by weird little freaks like Dorothy. Because I do not like that idea in the slightest. Yeah, that's a really good point. I hadn't thought of that. So Dorothy, despite her like momentary freakishness, Mm -hmm. gets over her obsession with this girl. And they leave the China land. And (laughs) eventually they come to the hill that leads to Glinda's castle, which is inexplicably populated by these short, armless little guys with projectile heads oh yeah yeah who for whatever reason really don't want them to go up the mountain Mm -hmm. and they like launch their projectile heads at them and this problem lasts for like three minutes and then dorothy's like oh i'll just get the monkeys and that's the last we hear about these guys a lot of the book is like that yeah so the monkeys take them all up the hill to glinda's castle where the witch reveals that dorothy's shoes can take her anywhere she wants to go dorothy says goodbye to her friends and glinda uses the monkeys to fly them to their respective new kingdoms before freeing the monkeys forever that's very kind of you glinda i'm surprised the monkeys didn't ask glinda to be their queen yeah Oh my god, we don't know what to do with this freedom. (laughs) So Dorothy knocks her heels together and instantly whirls through the air and is carried home, losing the silver shoes en route. So basically, like, she gets home and she's thrilled to be home and is reunited with Auntie Anne. Yeah, that's the end, right? It is. I love the last chapter. It is one page. I kept waiting for there to be some kind of thing where she was like, I've been gone so long. And Annie M was going to be like, what? What do you mean? It's only been like five minutes you know, mm-hmm. or something. But uh, So I guess implying they were just like fine without her. Because if all of this is real, then Dorothy was gone for, I don't know, at least a week or more. Yeah. And then they get home. And it says Auntie M had just come out of the house to water the cabbages when she looked up and saw Dorothy running toward her. Just to be clear, this is a whole chapter. My darling child, she cried, folding the little girl in her arms and covering her face with kisses. Where in the world did you come from? From the land of Oz, said Dorothy. Oh, sorry, she said it gravely, said Dorothy gravely. And here is Toto, too, no one asked. And oh, Auntie M, I'm so glad to be home again. And this is like, in the chapter before it, she lands in the Texas Prairie, in the Kansas Prairie, 
And just before her is the new farmhouse Uncle Henry built after the cyclone had carried the old one away. Uncle Henry was milking the cows in the barnyard. So Mm. they're just doing their lives. So he's had time to build a whole house. Yeah. Huh. Right? And she's, like, watering cabbages, and he's milking cows, and Dorothy the whole time is like, they're going to be so worried about me. It's a little unnerving. Yeah. Anyway, that's the book. Do you want to talk a little bit about two of your favorite moments? Yes. Okay. So in the movie, the scarecrow is like, I am afraid of fire. And then the witch like comes out of nowhere and blasts fireballs at him. And he like catches on fire. And the whole thing is very scary. Mm -hmm. And there's this amazing Chekhov's gun moment very early on when Dorothy meets the scarecrow. And it like is the end of a chapter. It Mm -hmm. feels so heavy where she's, he says that he's like not afraid of wild animals or something. He's like, there's only one thing in the world I am afraid of. What is that, asked Dorothy, the munchkin farmer who made you? No, answered the scarecrow. It's a lighted match. And then there is never any instance of a lighted match in the entire book. And I'm sorry, as someone who's a huge fan of saying Chekhov's gun nonstop, I was like, Chekhov's lighted match. It just doesn't come up. Yeah. I mean, it kind of is indicative of the book as a whole where like it just sort of feels unrevised yeah it's giving like Stuart little where yeah. kind of it was you know there's no real coherent thread that runs through the novel it's just like a series of little misadventures right which is fine you yeah know, it's a fairy tale i remember and... reading somewhere that l frank Baum wasn't big into revision and sometimes he wouldn't even <laughs> He's like, like, okay, done. Yeah, yeah. Like, I, I think he might not have even reread it after he finished it. He was like, all right, just send this to the editor, and <laughs> we're done here. First thought, I best have like thought. eight more books to write. <laughs> I have several more failed careers to get through. <laughs> I'm a very busy man. The uh, the other part of the book that I just like adore is the monkeys tell the story of how they became enslaved by the golden cap which also kind of comes out of nowhere and it's like very fairy tale-esque you know Mm -hmm. it's just like a little bit of background and they talk about this powerful sorceress uh, a beautiful princess who was supposed to be very good and used all her magic to help people and everybody loved quote everyone loved her but her greatest sorrow was that she could find no one to love in return since all the men were much too stupid and ugly to mate (laughs) with one so beautiful and wise (laughs) which is honestly like kind of I think how Tinder felt for me in like 2017. <laughs> yeah. And then she meets a young boy who is handsome and manly and wise beyond his years and just like keeps him in her ruby palace and just like grooms him until he grows up and then marries him. And that is weird. <laughs> and I think it's like wholly unnecessary. Why couldn't it be like, oh, you met this man who was wonderful? Why I don't understand, Bomb. I don't understand why it had to be a literal child. <laughs> I don't know. It is that was a weird moment too. Gave me gave me pause for sure. Alright, Sarah. Tell us about the style. So stylistically, the book has a pretty simple writing style. Al Frank Baum avoided long winded descriptive passages that he thought children would skip over. So like if you read a Hans Christian Anderson story, there's often quite a bit of like figurative language and imagery and stuff that is very lovely actually when i was in denmark last spring i went to hans christian anderson's grave in copenhagen 
And on his gravestone, it says in Danish, Hans Christian Andersen, poet. Oh. Which is interesting because I don't think we think of him as a poet. We think of him as yeah. a fairy tale writer, but which he was. But there is definitely poetry in his writing. That's lovely. Yeah. But L. Frank Baum did not want to do that. He <laughs> he wanted so to... Who has the time? He's le- Exactly. Who has the time? He's tended for pretty like straightforward diction and style. Michael Patrick Hearn wrote in the annotated Wizard of Oz that, quote, Baum generally employed good, solid, unadorned, almost formal American prose. With simple use of details and emphasis, Baum was able to vividly describe a locale, both atmospherically and physically, whether actual or imaginary. He rarely wasted a word. Baum criticized Lewis Carroll, the author oh, of Alice no, in he did not. Yeah, he did. He oh. said that... Okay, um, I'm going to start swinging. <laughs> he said that Carol's books were, quote, rambling and incoherent, but he admired Alice's ability to be, quote, doing something every moment and doing something strange and marvelous, too. So the child follows her with rapturous delight. Rambling and incoherent? How very dare he? It is no such thing. I will turn him into paste. So much paste. (laughs) He also did not intend for his book to have an underlying moral. I would say that that is super duper clear. Yeah. Which is totally fine. I just want to briefly come back to, okay, Lewis Carroll walked so that L. Frank Baum could run, except that Lewis Carroll also ran. (laughs) And I don't even think that L. Frank Baum has any right to say such mean and rude things because, frankly, he's kind of a biter. He straight up bit his style. Little girl goes to lunatic world full of weirdos. Hello. You can't outdo the doer. Yeah. I said what I said. You tell him. So our And Now Word From Us Kids segment is going to be quite brief today because there were very few reviews (laughs) of this book. Pretty Girl 1102 said, I love the confidence. Yeah, yeah. wait, hold on. <laughs> Pretty Girl 1102. This book was okay, but I was expecting more action. And, well, wizards. But people always say, never judge a book by its cover. Two stars. Okay, I guess she was saying that she made the mistake of judging the book by its cover and was expecting more action and wizards. But here's the thing also. It like... It's called The Wizard of Oz. Yeah, there's plenty of wizard. It's not plural. It. Exactly. You got all the wizard you need. And all the wizard, frankly, that you were promised. Yeah. You know what, Pretty Girl 102? I think that that's a bad take. Our second take comes from Bookish5, who said, I usually don't enjoy classics, but I found this was so easy to understand, and the plot was really fun. I thought it was cool to finally know how The Wizard of Oz ended, and overall, I really enjoyed it. That's sweet. Yeah. I agree. It is very easy to understand, and the plot is fun. I don't know what he means by it was cool to finally know how it ended. Like, was someone keeping this knowledge from him? Yeah, I don't know. Interesting. <laughs> Some backstory there to explore with Bookish Five. <laughs> I want to give a brief shout out to Sarah, who does 99.9% of the work for this podcast, <laughs> including writing the basic outline. My job is mostly just the plot summary, but one of the best things that Sarah does is title the different sections, and I think that's so sweet because no one reads this except for us. Our next section is called The Wonderful Girl Bosses of Oz, <laughs> and I'm already so engaged. <laughs> so 
As we said earlier, Baum had a relationship to the women's suffrage movement. He was an outspoken proponent of women's suffrage and was likely influenced by his mother-in-law, Matilda Gage. And Susan B. Anthony even visited the Baums in Aberdeen and stayed with them. Gage, Matilda Gage, his mother-in-law, was a theosophist? Hmm. Theosophist, yeah. So Matilda Gage, his, his mother-in-law, had posited a theory that an earlier history of matriarchy had been suppressed, and she viewed the demonization of witches as a way to devalue women. That is 100p true. Yeah. And so you'll notice that Oz has good witches and bad witches. Love it. And it has been suggested that the character of Dorothy was based on Gage. Dorothy doesn't do a whole hell of a lot. No. I mean, she's like an active presence, but like... She doesn't have, like, a lot of defining character traits. No, she doesn't, but she saves herself. There is something to be said for that. That's true. No one else does, Jesus Christ. (laughs) The entire book could have just been her and Glinda. (laughs) Yeah. Michael Hearn, again from the annotated Wizard of Oz, said, quote, The Wizard of Oz is now almost universally acknowledged to be the earliest truly feminist American children's book because of spunky and tenacious Dorothy. Homely little Dorothy refreshingly goes out and solves her problem herself. <laughs> just fucking called her ugly. Yeah, we don't have any um, indication elsewhere, like in the book, that she's homely. But anyway. Wow, damn. Okay, Hearn. Um, homely little Dorothy refreshingly goes out. I'll and... go little Dorothy. <laughs> it's so nice for someone so ugly to solve their own <laughs> problems instead of making it our problem. <laughs> All right. Whew. Homely little Dorothy refreshingly goes out and solves her problem herself, rather than waiting patiently like a beautiful heroine in a European fairy tale for someone else, whether the prince or commoner, to put things right. And the character who's supposed to save her, the wizard, turns out to just be some little old man behind a curtain Mm. who's a big old fraud, while the true ruler of Oz is Ozma, who is a woman who appears later in the books. Now we gotta read that one. Is that... Ozma of Oz? Probably. I don't know if that's the second one, but... That's the one they reference in You, yeah. starring Penn Bagley. <laughs> Can't be his name. I think it is. <laughs> yeah, I I would agree. I think that especially, you know, any book published in 1900 yeah. that um, has a female character, very exciting. And like you said, positive depictions of witches, mm-hmm. j'adore symbols and metaphors and allegories oh my (laughs) yeah so our next section is um about how the book has been interpreted in so many different ways over the years so you may have heard tara you familiar with this interpretation that the book is like about the gold standard and monetary policy with it but due to my being oh so stupid i don't know a lot about the gold standard (laughs) and the contemporary political landscape of 1890 whatever that's just not really my wheelhouse so So, i have heard that yes particularly about the silver shoes but sarah i think you are the person to explain yeah so there's a reading of the book that um reads it through a historical interpretation of it being about like the populist movement I should say that this reading of the story has been pretty much debunked in terms of, like, this is almost certainly not what L. Frank Baum was thinking about when he wrote the yeah, book. Yeah, he was pretty adamant, it sounds like, about being like, this is about exactly nothing. Right. So we'll talk a little bit about, like, why this theory is 
nonsense, but I think it's still interesting. I to... heard that theory tons of times. Yeah. And until I read this book, I thought that to be true because so many people said it. But I guess that's in the way that so many people tell you you can like bite off your finger like it's a carrot. Yeah. And you're like, I don't know if that's true, but they're like, you definitely can. And you're like, well, I don't know how I would dispute that. So yeah. I guess I'll just agree with you and believe you. And now I will go tell other people that they can bite off their finger like it's a carrot. Yeah. And, and you know, if you do bad. bite off your finger like it's a carrot, you can just get a ten finger. <laughs> and continue on in this way. Yeah. No reason to stop. No, just keep biting. <laughs> just keep chewing. <laughs> so this reading of Oz being about populism really happened in 1964. There was a historian and high school history teacher named Henry M. Littlefield who published an essay about the Wizard of Oz being kind of an allegory for populism. So in this reading, the yellow brick road represented the gold standard. The Wicked Witch of the East stood for industrialists and bankers on the U.S. East Coast who control the people, the munchkins. In his essay, Littlefield writes, quote, The Wizard of Oz has neither the mature religious appeal of a pil- Pilgrim's Progress nor the philosophic depth of a Candide. Yet the original Oz book conceals an unsuspected depth, end quote. So the rusted ten man is stuck in the same position for a year before Dorothy oils his joints. This has parallels with U.S. industry after the Depression of 1893. The scarecrow reflects the Kansas farmer is viewed by outsiders who needs a brain to replace the straw in his head. The cowardly lion is William Jennings Bryan, who campaigned to be U.S. president at the turn of the 20th century and advocated a standard of both silver and gold to replace the gold standard. And in Baum's book, Dorothy's slippers are silver. And Littlefield sets his reading against the backdrop of the late 19th century debate over U.S. monetary policy. In subsequent interpretations, the Emerald City symbolizes greenback paper money that has no real value, instead obtaining its value from a shared illusion. This guy would be an incredible Taylor Swift stan. <laughs> this guy said, Easter egg, Easter egg, Easter egg, Easter egg. Oh my God, you're so right. So busy. Yeah, so he fully went down this conspiracy theory rabbit hole. And he admitted at the time that he came up with this yeah, interpretation. Yeah, be a Taylor Swift stan or like a QAnon, like January yeah. 6th rioter. It's yeah. definitely one of the two. I think I was overly positive. <laughs> he said that he came up with this theory when he was teaching high school history to help his high school history students understand the politics of American populism at the turn of the century, he was using it as a teaching tool and that some of these interpretations and like symbols that he identified were things that his students came up with. It was kind of like a group brainstorming session almost where they were like, how can we draw parallels between the Wizard of Oz and what we're learning about in history, which is a fun, useful yeah. pedagogical tool to help your students. Admit- I don't think I understand. (laughs) Well, here's the thing, is that at this point, I think we've gotten far away enough from this period in American history, and it's not considered to be like a super fundamental period of American history, the way like the Civil War or World War II or the Revolution are. I would posit that like most Americans don't really know very much at all about that populist movement or the argument over the gold standard. Like, this is not a part of Thank American you. history. Thank you. I feel so validated. No, this is not a part of American history that I think most Americans could explain to you. And I think that kind of helps with this um, mythology around the Wizard of Oz being an allegory, because we, like, vaguely understand that it's probably an allegory, but we don't really know what it's an allegory for. Yeah. <laughs> 
we're like there's probably more there right (laughs) (laughs) there's no way some guy just wrote this (laughs) because i think most people couldn't really explain to you what exactly and also like what relief i was like has everybody been sitting here talking about populist ideology behind my back (laughs) like how did i just miss this I mean, the reason why he invented all this is because his students were having trouble understanding and retaining this period of American history. Thank and God. so he was like, let's try to make a pop cultural reference. So basically, since like the 1980s, historians have doubted the veracity of this interpretation because it would ascribe politics to bomb that he did not hold. His early newspaper columns show a preference for Republicans, not populists. And Littlefield, the author of this interpretation, even admitted that, quote, there is no basis in fact to consider Baum a supporter of the turn of the century populist ideology. All right. Good for him. Um, I really quickly wanted to point out, I just realized that the dedication in the book says this book is dedicated to my good friend and comrade, my wife. Yeah. Isn't that cute? That is really cute. Comrade. What a guy. (laughs) Um, But history teachers who are desperate to engage their students are not the only people who have tried to tell us what The Wizard of Oz is really about. So Christians' sermons have often discussed The Wizard of Oz as having biblical meanings. (laughs) (laughs) Comparing Dorothy's song over the rainbow. This is obviously the movie. Dorothy doesn't sing anything in the book. She'd be more fun if she did. Yeah. Dorothy's song over the rainbow to the end of the tale of Noah from the book of Genesis, or claiming that the Emerald City represents the heavenly city, the New Jerusalem. Interesting because the Emerald City is definitely a fraud, but... (laughs) Boom, roasted. And back to this word again. (laughs) Theosophy? So Baum joined the... Theosophical Society of Chicago in 1892, which was apparently this kind of kind of like spiritual, intellectual, quasi-religious thing. Theosophists sought to understand the mysteries of the universe, finding the common roots of all religions to uncover a secret universal doctrine. And so there have been people who have tried to kind of ascribe different religious meanings to different symbols of the text. So the yellow brick road could represent the golden path in Buddhism. The cyclone could represent reincarnation. Dorothy's silver shoes could be Baum's version of a silver cord that connects our physical bodies with our astral bodies. And the wizard is representative of all organized religions, basically like a charlatan who is keeping the masses in spiritual darkness. Dang, that's heavy. Yeah. And then the last interpretation of the book is viewing it as a drug trip so the wizard of oz became popular among the counterculture of the 1960s and all those damn hippies thought that um (laughs) rotten hippies (laughs) go take a shower i hate the beatniks (laughs) (laughs) wash your hair get a job hippie so wizard of oz and like wizard of oz imagery was very popular among the counterculture and especially references to the poppy field causing an opium-induced sleep, because obviously, you know. I feel like Alice in Wonderland was, too. Mm-hmm. It was. Yeah. All right. So our next segment is the familiar, the fan favorite. Actually, it is not a fan favorite. Did you see this review that someone left for us, Terry? No. <laughs> Hold on. I it's can't like, handle criticism. It's like, it's the kind of... Thing where you're like good i'm glad that you didn't like our show because you're not the kind of person who 
I would oh, want. Oh, okay. Phew, what a relief. The listener Rosie Dreams commented. Oh, by the way, this review has been up here for a year, so I just I just saw it. I really dislike this podcast. I was hoping to like it. I don't like the fact that the hosts focus on racism in Little House on the Prairie books that took around 1870. Racism isn't right, but just tell the story. This is a part of history. I'm so tired of the millennials criticizing everything. <laughs> Get over it and stop trying to draw a red X over everything. Rosie, babe, we're not drawing a red X over it. We, we talked about the book. Yeah. We t- I don't know what you wanted us to do. Did yeah. you want us to read the book? You know they make audiobooks. <laughs> if you just wanted to hear the book, you can do that. But, I mean, this is just like honestly classic millennials, right? Yeah, it's we are we are the woke mob. <laughs> it's like sorry for wanting to talk about racism when talking about some of the most yeah, aggressively the racist like, books in America. If it had been like Matilda, life. you know, yeah. and she'd been like, "Oh, you're focusing on the author, not the book," or something like that. But like, I'm sorry, Little House on the Prairie gets full of racist themes and imagery. Yeah, the content is you. racist. Like the con- exactly. And we said other things about the book. Yeah. We didn't, our, it, the whole series wasn't just that, but like, I don't know what to tell you, man. Like, I'm sorry you chose to listen to maybe the most racist book we've reviewed. <laughs> we have other ones. The Laura Ingalls Wilder Prize for Children's Literature has literally been renamed because like, it's like, yeah, like widely We're understood. not the first people to do this. <laughs> yeah. Anyway. So hopefully Rosie Dreams doesn't listen to this episode. Frank Albaum, when he was living in the Dakota Territory, he owned and wrote for a local newspaper. And he wrote two editorials in the 1890s during the Indian Wars in which he called for the complete extermination of Native Americans. Yeah, it's really, really bad. One of these, one of these editorials was in response to the death of Sitting Bull. Basically, Baum says that the only way to deal with the conflict between white settlers and Native people is to wipe out the Native people. It's really, really, really bad if you read it. It's like one of the most genocidal things I've ever read about conflict between white settlers and Indigenous people. The editorials are particularly strange given that Baum was living with his mother-in-law, Matilda Gage, at the time, who was an advocate for women's rights and Native American rights, and she was even adopted into the Mohawk Nation in 1893. So theoretically, Baum should have been exposed to more tolerant viewpoints. So God, what a fucking clown. (laughs) Yeah, so it's not like you can be like, well, he was just a product of the time. It's like, well... There were other people at that time who he literally lived with. In his house. (laughs) Who didn't think this way. Some people have, and I think these are just kind of like apologists, but some people have posited that the editorial was satire. I I don't buy that. But I don't buy that, and neither do Baum's descendants. So in 2006, two of his descendants apologized to the Sioux Nation for the editorials. Mac Hudson, a great-great-grandson of Frank Baum, explains in an interview with NPR that regardless of Baum's belief, a few days after the editorials were published, quote, at least 150 men, women, and children of the Minneconju band of the Lakota people were gunned down on the Pine Ridge Reservation by the 7th Cavalry, the Wounded Knee Massacre. Hudson also publicly acknowledged the editorials, or as he put it, quote, these calls for genocide, and said that, quote, they culminated in a bloody massacre like Wounded Knee. But also in his newspaper, Baum also published an interview with a Montana senator who called tensions with the Sioux a tragedy that happened as a result of European covetousness. And the senator claimed that ownership of land was an invention rather than an agreement with his aboriginal neighbor. 
And Baum responded by encouraging his readers to also view it as a tragedy rather than, quote, a victory for modern civilization. So it sounds like, I mean, he does view it as a tragedy, but he just doesn't view these people as human enough to, to not yeah, I, exterminate. I, I don't, I, I mean, I think it's confusing. I don't think we have enough information to say exactly what's going on here, but obviously it's very bad. <laughs> yeah. Mm, oh, bomb. And I think you can look at the politics of the book, too. Like we talked about earlier, there's a weirdness with all of these rulers and all of these enslaved people. It's interesting that this is considered to be the first American fairy tale. And it's just like monarchy, monarchy, monarchy. The will of the people <laughs> is, I guess it is acknowledged because it, they, they do. they're all clamoring for a ruler. Yeah. I don't know. There's just kind of a, a weirdness. A Why does... All, every land needs a, a ruler who inspires obsequious loyalty. Yeah, it's a little sketch. I don't want to suggest, because I don't think that there's a causal relationship there that we can tell. I don't want to imply that Baum's editorials caused the Wounded Knee Massacre. I don't think the cavalry or the U.S. government was reading Baum's newspaper or probably even really cared what he had to say. But certainly he was part of a culture of genocide. Absolutely. I don't think anyone could argue against that. All right. Well, shall we move into happier topics? Yes. The book was better, or was it, to be honest? So The Wizard of Oz was a 1939 musical fantasy film produced by MGM. It was directed primarily by Victor Fleming and starred uh, Judy Garland, of course. It was a huge critical success. It was nominated for six Academy Awards, including Best Picture. It ultimately won Best Original Song for Over the Rainbow and Best Original Score for Stothart. It was MGM's most expensive production at the time, and the film didn't make a profit until about 10 years after it was released in 1949. God, it came out in 39. That makes it all crazier. Mm-hmm. According to the Library of Congress, it is the most seen film in movie history and is regularly ranked among the best films of all time. A lot of people think that it was the movie that made the book famous, but really it's the other way around. The movie was made because the book was so famous and popular. And the movie was not a huge commercial success until the 1950s when it was played regularly on television. Wow. A lot has been written about the various disasters that took place on the set of The Wizard of Oz. The Tin Man had to be recast because the original actor inhaled some of the aluminum dust from his makeup and it like got into his lungs and Mm -hmm. he had to be hospitalized and it caused breathing problems for the rest of his life. Good God. For the second actor, the second Ten Man, they realized that they could apply the aluminum as paste, and so he didn't have that problem. The witch caught on fire. Mm-hmm. There was a scene with like the pyrotechnics. I mm-hmm. guess they like went off too early, or she was too close, and her green makeup mm-hmm. was highly flammable. And she went up in flames as well, and obviously survived and was okay, but, you know, was pretty seriously injured. Yeah, she had third-degree burns on her face and hands. That and um, grotesque. Had to be hospitalized. And her face makeup had copper in it, which is also toxic, so it had to be really aggressively removed every day, which was really hard on her skin. The Cowardly Lion's costume was made of... (laughs) Abomination. It was, like, weighed over 100 pounds. It was made of real lion pelts. 
and, Are you serious? Yeah. That is psychotic. I um, guess it was 1939. Yeah. And under the stage lights, which would get really hot, it could be 100 degrees. And then you're also wearing a 100-pound fur pelt. <laughs> His costume had to be, like, specially cleaned every day because he sweated so much in it. Oh. Sounds like Jim Carrey and the cat in the hat. <laughs> Ew. I remember reading, like, a, I think it was, like, a Time Kids magazine. <laughs> so gross. That article. It just stuck with me. I was like, oh. <laughs> what else? I mean, it went way over budget. They went through four directors. So Victor Fleming directed the majority of the movie, but they went through four different directors. Judy Garland was slapped across the face by Victor <gasps> Fleming. Um, Are you serious? Yeah, because she was giggling a lot during a take and was having trouble getting through it. And he was like, you're wasting our money because film is expensive. And so he slapped her across the face. She was also put on amphetamines. That I did know. They bound her breasts and put her on amphetamines because they were like, she looks too womanly. It's like, well, you cast her. Yeah. So, so hold up. If you wanted a child, then maybe don't cast a 16-year-old, you know? That's my advice. So they put her on amphetamines, basically like diet pills to keep her from gaining weight. They wanted her to be at 95 pounds. Wow. Which for a 16-year-old girl going through puberty is is so dangerous. So dangerous. And Judy Garland had a a lifelong problem with drugs and I think died of an overdose, so... Jesus Louises. So that's really sad. Um, one good thing that happened is, I mean, obviously it was a, a good movie, so there's that. Hooray! <laughs> Other than that, Mrs. Lincoln. <laughs> How did you like The Wizard of Oz? Many of the little people who played the munchkins on set describe a really positive experience. I am genuinely shocked to hear that. Yeah. I mean, I think it has less to do with anything that The Wizard of Oz did, and more that it was just the first time that so many little people had been with other Uh, little people. That is a really good point. This article that was published in The New Yorker in 2018 talks about the experience of the actors who played the munchkins. This article is by Matt Weinstock, and he wrote... Quote, gay people, trans people, little people, we're all born in helpless diaspora and reconstituting the dandelion is the dilemma of our lives. For the 124 little people who descended on the set of Munchkin Land, it was a moment of homecoming. When the dwarf Hazel Resmondo walked onto the soundstage, she wept. Several little people met their husbands and wives while making the film, and others Mm. formed lasting friendships. Quote, wow. the experience made me feel like maybe I wasn't so bad after all, said Fern Formica, who played Sleepyhead. Maybe I was as good as anyone else. According to the activist Billy Barty, the unprecedented congregation of little people on Oz led to the formation of what was then called the Midgets of America Adv- Advocacy Group, which is now known it as Little probably People. Probably not called that now. <laughs> it is now known as the Little People of America, and it boasts more than 6,000 members. It wow, was, like, actually special. a moment of, like, organizing. Yeah, that's huge. That is no small thing. So that's interesting. And I was watching videos last night, like, interviews with different actors who played Munchkins. And, you know, many of them up until their death remained so proud of their work on the film and spoke so positively of Judy Garland and the experience they had. 
That's um, amazing. Yeah. One downside is that there has been this rumor that is like pretty unsubstantiated that there was like a lot of debauchery on the set of Munchkinland, and that that's comes from ableism, dehumanizing, and yeah. But there's not any evidence to suggest that there was. Yeah, like... that's so fucking weird. Yes. But yeah, I, I recently re-watched the movie. I've seen it, obviously, before. And I will say that it, it is such a visually stunning movie. It's amazing to me that this movie is as old as it is and feels fresher than watching a Spider-Man movie from 2007. You know? Yeah, I got you. One hundo like, P. Something about bad CGI is... It's so much more dated than like good set work you know yeah. the cyclone scene with the tornado it, it looks good the poppy flower scene is like really really beautiful when she enters oz you know you would think yeah. that like i mean it's such a cliched moment that and at this point in american culture that idea of going from black and white to color and the but it's still i mean it's a wonderful moment yeah it's it's really effective Oh, one other aspect of the movie that was cursed. So in the movie, they're not rescued from the poppy field by mice. Glinda sends snow down and it snows on them and wakes them up. Yes, that's right. And do you know what the snow was made of, Terry? Asbestos. Yep. (laughs) Yep. I don't know if I already knew that or it's just as soon as you said it, I was like, it could only be asbestos. (laughs) Like they're just covered in floating asbestos. That's insane, man. If you think not about the, not just about the actors, but everybody who was on that soundstage. Yeah. That is horrific. Yeah. What are your thoughts on the movie, Terry? Anything you want to add? I love it. I think it's a great movie. I think it's very scary for young children. It is. uh, But in like a fun, safe Mm -hmm. way. And like you said, like it doesn't feel dated. I also, I know that you (laughs) said that you think the it's all a dream thing was kind of a cop out. But was that a thing before? Yeah, it was already a cliche. It was already a cliche. Rats. Because I I always loved the bit about her, like, realizing that, like, different people in the room. Like, when I was a kid, I always thought that part was so cool. But she, like, recognized all the different people. Yeah, I do think that it being a dream at the end and her realizing the characters' parallels in her life, you know? Like, the farm hands being the... Tin Man and the Scarecrow. I could see the cliche. As a kid, I loved it. I think that is kind of fun. I just, it's obviously, it's a cliche, right? And it's, it felt, it feels like a cop-out because I'm like, no, Oz is real. Yeah. Like, Oz is real. Like, Narnia is real. Like, Hogwarts is real. That's true. It's not a weird dream. It's real. Yeah. Wonderland, I think, is a dream. Yeah, it is. Wonderland both times. The Looking Glass and the and Wonderland mm-hmm. um, both involve her dozing off, I think. Yeah, I also, the other thing that I like a lot about the movie in comparison to the book is the singular villain. <laughs> yeah. Which is part of why the movie is like so, I think, so. I mean, she's one of the most famous villains of all time. Mm-hmm. Because she is threaded throughout the whole story instead of just kind of being a side plot point like she is in the book. Yeah, the movie is definitely more coherent. It's way more coherent, which, you know, and like you said, you know, it's it's there's it's a children's book published in 1900. It's a fairy tale. It's totally fine that it's completely incoherent. <laughs> but I think making the choice to translate it to screen, I think that they made good decisions in kind of like beefing up 
some storylines and just dropping others entirely. Right. We did not need the quadrilets or whatever they were. The short men with the projectile heads. <laughs> yeah, nor did we need all the decapitations of animals. So this movie was in talks for a long time before it was being before it was made. And it went through lots of different screenplays by different writers. And at one point there was concern that fantasy movies weren't doing well in Hollywood. And so they were like, why don't we do it without magic? There was literally a proposal that they do a version Wait, what? of The Wizard of Oz without any, quote, magical elements. Wow, I... Huh? What does that even mean? Does she just, like, go yeah, to, Yeah, she like... goes on a walk around the block. <laughs> she just, like, goes to Omaha. And... Yeah. There was also, they thought about making it a more romantic storyline with her and the Scarecrow. It's kind of hinted at in the movie at the end when she says goodbye to all the characters and she says to the Scarecrow, and I'll miss you most of all. I know. I remember, I always, like, I I think I could tell in the movie that it was, like, kind of like, oh, (laughs) okay. But I was also wondering if it was because she met him first. (laughs) That's what I was like. She spent the most time with him. He's her best bud. But yeah, you're right. That was... I did kind of get that sense, too, as a kid. You're right, they do do that a little bit. Like, probably a little old for Judy Garland. Almost certainly. What else? I will say that the most recent time I watched it, it felt like we could have cut a little bit down on the, the singing and skipping. <laughs> I'm just imagining you as, like, a board exec. Like, <laughs> I'm going to be real with you guys. <laughs> there was just so much of it. I think I didn't realize how much of the movie I mean like more than half of it I think is like her just meeting those three main characters and then learning. The book is pretty sudden. It's like this is the specific reasons why I am messed up. (laughs) And then they like sing a (laughs) little song about it. But yeah it started to get a little tiring for me. I can see that. I was like let's get a move on. All right, Sarah it's time. Were you to rate this book out of silver shoes, how many silver shoes would you give it? I guess I would give it eight out of ten silver shoes. Yeah. I think we give a lot of books eight out of ten. <laughs> but I would also give this book eight out of ten silver shoes. It's not my favorite, but I, I did enjoy it. It was a quick read. And it's, you know, it's like you sh- you just should read it. It's part of the, the canon, you yeah. know? Well, Sarah, where can they find us? Yeah, thank you all for making it to the end of another episode. Please rate, review, subscribe. And if you would like to find us on Instagram or Twitter, we are at reading underscore recess. And our email is readingduringrecesspod, P-O-D, at gmail.com. And don't send us any stupid comments like Rosie's about (laughs) wokeism and racism. I don't want to hear it. (laughs) Yeah, thank you. It's tired. Go on Facebook, complain to your grandkids. I don't give a shit. (laughs) But to all you loyal listeners, all you liberated flying monkeys out there, stay reading.